what you're about to listen to may include some potty talk. Then again, it may not. I hope it does, though. It's Tuesday, September 18th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesco. With Christine Blasey Ford's invitation to testify before the Judiciary Committee on Monday, I think what I should do is just wait for the testimony. Part of this is to wait to form an opinion on the strengths of Kavanaugh's denial. I get it. I get the basic allegations. I need to hear more evidence. That would seem to be the best practice for me, for a news consumer like me. Still, I get sucked in ancillary nonsense abounds. So you probably heard that 65 women who knew Kavanaugh in high school said he was a fine, fine young man. Then the allegations, Ford's allegations came out. So Politico, like good journalists, they tried to contact all 65 women who a week ago had vouched for him. They didn't hear back. They largely did not hear back. They put this fact out there that they didn't hear back. That's fine, I guess. But then a lefty website, Share Blue goes with this as a headline. A day after Kavanaugh accuser comes forward, few women stand by him. No, few women returned a reporter's emails or call or Facebook queries if that query call or email ever got to the woman in the first place. If I wrote a letter of support in somebody and then there was a gigantic accusation about the person, but I had zero way of ascertaining the truth of the accusation, I would not want to come out and either stand by my endorsement or retract my endorsement. I would do, I think, what any rational human being would do, which is wait to see how this all played out. And I do not know if I would feel the need to tell a reporter from Politico, yeah, I'm going to wait to see how this plays out. Maybe you think, maybe you're listening, you think, ah, but they wrote a letter of support. Therefore, they're obligated to either tell us strongly, I stand by him, or I refute him. But I really think the vast majority of people do not think like that. So the Huffington Post tracked down other sets of endorsers, women and men, who have supported Kavanaugh along the way. There were 34 former law clerks who wrote letters of support of him, and there were 80 Harvard students who wrote letters of support of him before the allegations came out. HuffPo tracked him down, And of the 34 former law clerks, 11 support Kavanaugh. And then they write confusingly for requested anonymity. Do they mean of the 11 or there were an additional four who had no comment? Maybe they're conflating anonymity with no comment. And on the Harvard students, they found that 14 of the 80 still want to say they support Kavanaugh. Seven requested anonymity. Don't know what that means, but it would seem like at least three quarters of the Harvard students did not get back to the Huffington Post. Now, one Harvard student changed her endorsement, and she told the Huffington Post she no longer supports Kavanaugh. Still, the Huffington Post ran this headline, Brett Kavanaugh's supporters now far more reluctant to speak up publicly. I guess it's true But it does imply he's losing support. He doesn't have support if they're reluctant to speak up publicly. But the fact is, of the 179 people in those three letters of endorsement I spoke of, one, one has officially told reporters that they have withdrawn their endorsement. So you could write a headline emphasizing that one of 179, so around one half of 1%, of Kavanaugh supporters have defected. 
Or you can write a headline emphasizing that most Kavanaugh supporters are not publicly supporting him in quite as vocal a way. I would suggest that you don't write either headline, and I know for myself, not reading such a headline would probably be the best policy. And then it comes to the pro-Kavanaugh broadcast news. Very infuriating. Fox News mentioned the fact that Brett Kavanaugh went through six FBI background checks a few hundred times. On Fox and Friends, they said it. Why didn't they reveal this name when the FBI was doing, I think, six background checks? Why didn't Diane Feinstein bring it up one-on-one with Kavanaugh? The Ingram angle. Because allegations such as this, they should have been examined in any of the six FBI background checks that Kavanaugh underwent. This echoed the sentiments of senators. Uh, Kavanaugh's been through six. Not four, not five, six FBI background checks. None of the stuff has ever come up before. Senator, let's go vote. That was John Kennedy of Louisiana, and it goes all the way up to the president. And now they have done supposedly six background checks over the years as Judge Kavanaugh has gone beautifully up a ladder. This is idiotic. How could six, not five, not seven, not 32, how could six background checks have revealed an incident which no one ever talked about until 2012 when those background checks occurred in 1993 when he became Anthony Kennedy's law clerk between 2001 and 2006 when he was Bush's White House counsel and assistant and staff secretary or 2006 when he was confirmed to the federal bench. Come on, five of those six background checks occurred before this story was ever breathed out loud to any other human on the planet. I am not impressed with six background checks. And the last one happened before there was public disclosure either. What does six background checks matter if they all happened before there was any way to get at this allegation? Six FBI back, FBI, not E-A-H, the FBI, not five, not six. They didn't find out about this story 12 years before anyone talked out loud about this story. Somehow, the FBI. Like I said, deep breaths, deep breaths. Wait until Monday. And in the meantime, I will tide myself over by reading Brett Kavanaugh friend Mark Judge's yearbook quotes. Oh, Jesus. On the show today, I spiel about what Stormy Daniels noticed about our future POTUS. But first, Georgia's Democratic nominee for governor will be the first black female ever elected. If Stacey Abrams does get elected, she will also be the first lesbian governor in America, though we do have a bisexual governor who is married to a man right now in Oregon. That's a little LGBT FYI for you. But this is not what we're going to talk about in terms of Stacey Abrams first, because she will be, for our conversation, notably, the first governor who has been using her indebtedness as a campaign issue. Journalist Nick Foriezos took a deep dive into this line of argument and the larger issue of debt on the campaign trail. We're thrilled to announce Slate Day, a live podcast experience produced in conjunction with the Texas Tribune Festival. Join us and the Gist's fellow politically-minded shows, Political Gap Fest, Trump Cast, Amicus, and El Gap Fest. Attendees will experience their favorite political podcasts live and will have unique opportunities to mingle with the hosts and fellow fans during our cocktail party 
and you'll also get to purchase exclusive merchandise at a Slate Day pop-up shop. Slate Day will take place at the Capitol Factory in downtown Austin, Texas on Saturday, September 29th in partnership with the Texas Tribune Festival. It's an intimate venue with limited seating. Get your tickets today. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets and info. Hey, all you true crime fans. This is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphin. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. Stacey Abrams is running for governor of Georgia, and she has debt. She has debt like a lot of Americans have debt, but a lot of Americans aren't running for governor, so it has become a campaign issue. And then that issue took a little bit of an interesting turn. Stacey Abrams addressed it, owned it, and kind of turned it into, this makes me like you. Many of us have debt. A journalist named Nick Foriezos looked into not just Stacey Abrams, but the entire issue of how much debt Americans and candidates are carrying, and it's really interesting. Hello, Nick. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So when I first heard, and I was vacationing in Georgia, and every third ad during Family Feud is Stacey Abrams, 50000 in debt, <laughs> and then gave 50000 to her campaign. Basically, the only issue is, do you want a governor who might have some credit card debt? This couldn't be a bigger issue. So the the point of that is to show that at least the Republican candidate, Kemp, thought this was a cudgel, thought this would hurt her. But how did Abrams address it and has it been hurting her? Well, that's right. I mean, obviously, Republicans are pouncing on it. Uh, there's this another ad that you might have seen called that where they uh, deadpan, guess every day is Christmas for Stacey Abrams. Yes. So there's a lot you know, of- it's the uh, sort of uh, elevated the, discourse that campaign ads are <laughs> Right, for, yeah. right. So I actually was asking the same question. And so I read uh, a Fortune editorial that Stacey did back in April, I believe. And in that uh, editorial, it was earlier this spring, uh, she talks about this. And she actually was very savvy from her. You know, I've been covering her for years. I, I'm from Georgia. I used to work for Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And so, you know, she's a very savvy operator. And what she did, she got ahead of the story by saying, yes, I have $170,000 in credit card and student loan debt. Yes, I have over $50,000 in deferred tax payments IRS. But I took on that debt to help my parents and my niece when my father was undergoing cancer treatments, you know. Uh, something kind of trying to humanize her, right? And she talked a lot about the disparities uh, that happen to women of color specifically um, that lead to them having to carry more debt. So I I took that editorial and I think a lot of the national press did uh, jump on that and said, wow, like she's normalizing debt. That's great. She's humanizing it. You know, a lot of people have debt. They'll, they'll understand it. But I wanted to actually analyze her claims. Is this something that is normal? And so I actually analyzed the personal financial disclosure reports of 396 candidates who are running or did run this election season in the 56 most competitive congressional districts across the nation. Let me just interrupt and, and say, yep. wow, do you have a computer? <laughs> <laughs> I have a computer, I had an Excel sheet, and yeah. I had way too much time. Are you a data journalist? Hands. Is this a thing you I'm do? I'm not normally. You know, I'm yeah. a national politics reporter. I cover everything, but uh, this was something that called out, so I, uh, I went ahead and did it. Mm -hmm. And um, we found that 62% of those congressional hopefuls, about 244 of them had some liabilities, and at least 65 of them carried more than $50,000 in non-mortgage debt, student loans being the biggest ones. And, you know, like anything and else— this is the personal debt. This is not campaign debt. 
This is personal debt, exactly. This is student loans, this is credit cards. We found not just auto loans, but a few candidates had a boat or even a plane in one case. And so these are the debts that they owed. Is it okay if I'm judgmental about that one? The plane? Oh, I, I judged it pretty hard. <laughs> okay. You know, when I when I realized I had to list cars, boats, and planes, I thought right. I was, you know, yeah. right. But, you know, there is a certain amount of it that's normal. But at the same time, like anything else, it's the type of debt that Americans are going to judge you by, right? Um, her credit card debt was different in the sense that it's about five times the national average. Her student loan debt is different in the sense that it's three times the national average. And she's not just fresh out of law school, as one source told me. You know, I, you know after being out of school for 20 years, you'd, you'd hope she had a better handle of it. But the big problematic one is the $54,000 Abrams owed to the IRS. When we looked at that data, only three three candidates owed back taxes mm-hmm. and none of them owed near that much. What's more, you know, she has actually donated $50,000 to her own campaign as you alluded to uh, and she's paid back that since. The campaign has paid that back to her. But it opens her up to this criticism that might be fair that, you know, she'd rather fund her political ambitions than pay back the federal government. To be fair, her campaign will say here that, well, they are on a payment plan. That's fine. But, you know, she could use that money for that. Yeah. Um, now, when you say she has five times the credit card debt as the national average, do you mean Americans' average or the average of the pool of candidates? This is the you American average okay. in that context. How does she compare it to the candidates who had debt? Um, one hundred seventy thousand was def. I don't have the exact numbers on me, but it was definitely an outlier. Um, you know, of course, again, you have some lawyers who have that kind of debt. That's that's understandable. But right. when you count the credit card debt, especially. Uh, it was a surprising number for sure. And and uh, we'll give her props, like you said, for um, A, being smart about it as a political issue and trying to humanize debt. But to some extent when she says, oh, uh, as a black wim- woman, black women have more debt, that is true. But as a Yale Law School graduate, that's another demo that you're in. And I would say they probably have less financial burdens than your average black woman. Well, you know, she grew up poor in... Uh, I believe it was Gulfport. She also, like her parents were both pastors and did not make a ton of money growing up. And her parents had to take on another child, her niece, when uh, her brother was you know, convicted for drug charges and is now in prison. However, she does also have a sister who is on the Georgia Supreme Court, uh, you know, as a Georgia justice and gets paid, you know, very well. And so yeah. she isn't totally alone in this. But also but, she's, um, and maybe it's unfair what I said, comparing her to Yale Law School graduates, she's been, correct me if I'm wrong, she's she's written books, in fact, kind of successful novels uh, under a pseudonym, but she's been a public servant her whole life. She's never been a partner in some, you know, prestigious law firm. Well, but she's also been a businesswoman. Uh, and that's actually, this goes to it. You know, who is Stacey Abrams? She's a myriad uh, person. You know, she is someone who, when I met with her two years ago in Atlanta Coffee Shop, was telling me about all the businesses she'd started and run. Um, so she's a multi-time entrepreneur. She has been a part-time legislator, a full-time legislator this whole time as well. Um, but she also is a very successful Harlequin romance novelist. Um, that style uh, uh, that she penned under nom de plume, Selena Montgomery. So she has all these different pots that she's working with. And this is the other thing about the financial issues that's a little bit troubling. You know, I covered that 2014 election when she was a state house minority leader and she was helping the Georgia Senate races. Uh, she started a program called the New Georgia Project, which promised to, to do a wave election, bring in all these new voters that were going to vote Democratic. In the end of the day, 
you know, she had received millions of dollars in national donors. She took a $177,000, 500 salary, and uh, she was only able to register less than 100,000 new voters. It was a big deal. It was controversial. And even fellow Democrats accused her of mismanaging that money during that time. So her financial picture is, you know, mixed, and she would be in charge of running the state's $25 billion budget. If she were uh, a businessman with failed businesses, and I'm not even going to the Trump case, but there is a narrative among a businessman who came back from bankruptcy, which is debt, that it seems to me less weaponized on campaign trails than this kind of personal debt is. Business debt is definitely looked at differently than personal debt, even though as one of the experts I quote in the piece says, there is no difference, you know, in terms of the law. Uh, but let's actually go to the Trump example, right? Uh, you know, Trump is someone <laughs> who became president. Pull, pull right, right. I mean, well, well, let's just look at the comparison, right? Trump is someone who declared bankruptcy as many as six times in his different businesses. Personal loans, meanwhile, are something that's seen differently. Again, not legally differently. And uh, as one of my experts says, you know, when you bring it down to this individual human nature, uh, we become more highly judgmental. Abrams, you know, again, this is something that's going to come up in the campaign, and she has to defend herself against it. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you one more question. I think about Stacey Abrams, then get on to the bigger picture, and it's this. She ran a very hard-fought Democratic primary against another Stacey Evans, I think. Yeah. It didn't come up, to my knowledge. Is this because Republicans look at it differently from Democrats, or the Evans campaign just wasn't savvy enough to point to it? No, the Evans cam- it wasn't that the Evans campaign wasn't savvy. It was because they made a conscious decision not to go after after her for it. it. It did get mentioned and it just wasn't something they I think that they thought that the, the press around it would do the job for them and that it would muddy their hands if they were the ones to do it. But it is an interesting question. Well, let me should, interrupt you. That means that they at least had the assumption that this is a big stigma. Like they assumed that people would think of this as a stigma and maybe if they just slip an envelope to a reporter, it would stigmatize Stacey Abrams. I, well, I don't think they stuck an envelope. This was publicly reported. But that being said, I did talk to people after that bloody primary and they wouldn't go on record with me. But, you know, the gist of it was, was they thought it should have been much more of a deal. And they thought that the national press and they also thought that the national party papered over uh, the debt problem. Does the fact that so many candidates have so much debt say something about the quality of our candidates or the quality of our conversation and honesty about debt in America? Well, it depends on what you mean by quality. Some people, including the ones in my piece, do argue that actually you need people who are representative of the actual struggles that people are facing. And it's a little different than Abrams who owes this IRS debt because these are people who maybe just took out student loans or you know had to support a family member. What I will say is that this is most likely the most indebted political generation of candidates that we've had for two reasons. One, as a whole, Americans are more indebted than ever before. That's been covered, high rise and college costs, all that sort of thing. But the second Second thing is that with this wave of new candidates that are running, a lot of first-time candidates, a lot of women, a lot of people of color, uh, demographics that typically have to take on more debt to be successful based on historical trends. Also, just a rush of people who didn't plan to run for office, so they weren't necessarily, you know, managing their finances in a way that one day they knew they'd be accountable for it, right? And so these are ordinary people who ran for office. We've had this, you know, rush of candidates, and that leads to more candidates who are more likely to be carrying debt in a way that we haven't seen before. So I think those two headwinds, the indebtedness of America combined with the rush of new first time, maybe not planning to be political, but suddenly political candidates, that is creating this generation. Do you think the debt of Stacey Abrams will be 
a big issue, the big issue in her race? No, I think that when there are so many fires going off, you know, it's hard hard to see which spark will uh, kind of ignite the race, right? I think that this will be a important one, especially in a, in a state that's very much known for its small business prowess. Uh, Georgia's doing very well. Tax breaks have led to it becoming the Hollywood of the South. You know that uh, her opponent, Brian Kemp, is pushing that line. So what they want to see from her is that she is pro-business. And she has made that argument and she has made it forcefully. And she's shown it in her record as well. But whether or not they believe or not, especially tied to her financial problems, you know, is, is another question. And it, it remains to be seen. Nick Foriezos is a reporter for Ozzy, which is – go ahead. Give me the, uh, give me the elevator <laughs> pitch on Ozzy. Ozzy is a global online magazine that's based in Mountain View, but we cover everything. They actually sent me out for a year on the road to spend a week in every state after the 2016 election. So we are diverse in our thoughts and opinions, and we are covering politics, sports, a little bit of everything. So. So 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 Nick, what's the mood in Delaware? I mean, that's what everyone wants to know. <laughs> uh, I don't I don't have the answer specifically. You went to Delaware every state. I went to every state last year. Spent a week in each one, uh, writing about a week, a, a week. week in each one. I a week in each Dakota and a week in California. That's right. And that's, <laughs> it makes, all right, Ozzy. I'm going to say in year two of your existence, you might want to look at the travel budget for Nick. That's just my <laughs> that's just my advice. A week in each Dakota. Come on, Nick. Hey man, got some good <laughs> stories there. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. It is very hard to get information about the exact size and shape of the president's tariffs. There's just a lot of gray area. He talks a big game and apparently the tariffs will be implemented in a few weeks and then raise in in percentage to coincide with the Christmas shopping season. So like I say, very hard to get information about the exact size and shape of the president's tariffs. It's very hard to get information about the exact size and shape of the president's Russian interactions. This is true. It's a big, big Mueller investigation going on about this and it is maddeningly, frustratingly, very difficult to get important information about the exact size and shape of the president's tax returns. But penis, oh yeah, yeah, we got all the penis info. It's kind of small, it looks like a mushroom. Don't think portobello, think more a button. So says Stormy Daniels, and now we know. Who would have thought that we would be discussing the size of the president's penis? Oh, Anyone who was paying attention to the 2016 race. And he referred to my hands. If they're small, something else must be small. I guarantee you there's no problem. I guarantee you. Okay. Of the last four presidents, two have forced the American public to contemplate the size and shape of their penises. Bill Clinton's lawyer once said, quote, his erect penis is about five inches long, has the circumference of a quarter, and heads off at an angle, presumably rather like a finger bent at the joint. I don't know if this is true, but if it is, this being America, there is a pharmacological solution to one's more sinuous member. If you're curved below the belt, you may not know what caused it, and you may not know what to do. A significant curve may be a medical condition called Peroni's disease. And there are thousands of other men out there who may also have it. Oh, maybe that's why Trump had sex with all these playmates and porn stars. He did not want to go undiagnosed. It's a little self-care. 
or he's a horrible lech. Now, I've never heard of Peroni's disease. Some of us are more on the uh, <laughs> straight and narrow, if you know what it. Wait, no, not narrow. Anyway, moving on. I literally have never heard of Peroni's disease until I saw a Peroni's disease ad today on CNN. Coincidence? I don't know. If the ad were on Fox News, I'd call it a highly clever, targeted advertisement. But I began to wonder about this Dr. Peroni himself, old Doc Peroni. If you were a researcher, you would, of course, love to have your life's work become an eponym. It is a bequeath to your children and further generations. Except, perhaps in the case when the family name that you give an ailment is that of a crooked ding-dong. But anyway, I was wondering, who is this Peroni? Did a little research. Francois Gigot de la Peroni was a French surgeon, surgeon, <laughs> surgeon, who was born in Montpellier, France. Ah, yes, I remember seeing Dr. Peroni's portrait in the Louvre. He was the man in poofy pantaloons with an uncomfortable expression who was tilting slightly to the left. Oh, no, he wasn't. As a teenager, this is true about the good doctor. As a teenager, he studied philosophy and surgery in Montpellier, where in 1695, he received his diploma as a barber surgeon. So a few things. His name is definitely not pronounced Peroni. That's what I used to wash down a pasta puttanesca. And Dr. Peroni's descendants have had 300 years to run away from the association. So that's good. Lucky for them. But I was just stuck on the phrase barber surgeon. You could see why that fact was left out of the ad for the curvy wang doodle. Seriously, that one phrase, accurate though it may be, could sink an entire product line. Then you, like many others, may be suffering from Peroni's disease, named for the famous 17th century barber surgeon. Tell your doctor or your barber surgeon about your curved penis and never, ever be able to live it down. Oh, my. Anyway, where was I? How did we get from there to here and a barber surgeon in the 17th century? Oh, right. The current United States president who had sex with a porn star and used campaign funds to cover it up. So now we might get Mike Pence as president as a result. Say what you want about Mike Pence, but I am fairly certain that he has the most unexceptional yet sturdy penis the world, or at least mother, has ever known. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who have combined past six total background checks. Pierre passed five of them. And then I asked Pierre, what about this Daniel guy? And Pierre was like, yeah, vouch for him. TJ Raphael is the senior producer of Slate Podcast. She passed a background check. It consisted of her having seen background on Midnight Train to Georgia during staff karaoke. Her rating? Woo-woo! Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, finds the counting off of numbers that aren't quite as extreme as the number you wish to emphasize to be the most annoying thing. It's not the fourth most annoying. It's not the twelfth most annoying. It's the most annoying. The gist. Brett Kavanaugh. He's like the Lance Armstrong of past background checks. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>